This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to Literary Treks. This is episode number 261. We're going to talk about Vulcan's glory. Yes, indeed we are. Hi, I'm Bruce Gibson. Welcome to the show. We are the official Star Trek books and comics podcast of the Trek FM network. And with me as he thinks he always is because he always is is dan gunther dan what's up <laughs> scared me for a second there i was like are you recording secret episodes i don't know about <laughs> i am it's for the patrons so you can oh. patrons can hear my secret up epi- no there's no secret episodes man i don't even know what to believe now <laughs> <laughs> i am section 31 i've got all kinds oh. of secrets dang it no, Where it's can like, I get those really cool communicator badges? I want one of those. Yeah, well, mm, yeah, I can't say anything about the last episode of Discovery that I just watched this evening. Oh, and I haven't watched it yet. <laughs> Dang it. Well, I just, Ugh. I gave a reveal that there's Section 31 in it, but yet they're in every episode this season practically anyway, so. Yeah, I saw Giorgio in the trailer, so. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Anyway, as I mentioned at the start of the show, we are going to review the novel Vulcan's Glory, and this is a TOS novel from way back when. We'll tell you more about that later, but that's going to be in the feature. And by the way, it was written by DC Fontana. You know who she is, Dan? Oh, yes. Very, very excited uh, that we got to read a novel by her thought by many to be one of the best writers in the original series. DC Fontana, of course, responsible for great episodes like Journey to Babel and uh, This Side of Paradise. An incredible writer. Absolutely, yes. And uh, this novel is a Captain Pike novel also. So there's a reason we chose this now, because, of course, Pike is in Discovery. But again, That's for later. In the meantime, let's get to something a little more serious. We have a new comic that has been released. It's issue number five of Star Trek versus Transformers. Seriously, we're getting serious. Okay, so I'm going to (laughs) open up my issue here. And I'm looking at the cover. And I see these big robot type 
things. I guess those are the Transformers. Well, of course I know that because I've read four previous issues. Okay, Dan. So this thing starts off where we left things off in issue four, and we have two Enterprises. And so one is the original Enterprise, and the other one is a Transformers-type Cybertronian Enterprise with Kirk hooked up to it, linking his mind to Fortress Maximus. I think I got that right. Yes, Fortress Maximus, which, because Kirk is in control of it and it's a big enterprise, is now known as Fortress Tiberius, apparently. <laughs> I'm going to change my Twitter name to Fortress Tiberius. I like that. Oh, I should have used that as my login name for this meeting. <laughs> so again, now, if, if anybody hasn't heard us talk about these comics before, yes, these are supposed to be fun. This isn't all serious. This is done in the style of the animated series. So, for example, I'm looking at Eric's right now on the Enterprise Bridge. So it's like the animated series meets the animated Transformer series, which I think that uh, Transformer series, the original one, came out in the 80s. I'm pretty sure. Right. Yeah. With, of course, the animated series of Star Trek being in the 70s. So kind of two different styles, but I think they've melded them together pretty well here. Yeah. It would be like taking the Brady Bunch meeting Full House. Right, yeah. <laughs> Which, I would watch that. I don't know that I would, but cool. <laughs> I know someone who would, who's connected to Star Trek, John Jackson Miller. I guarantee you he would watch it too, because he likes all the classic TV stuff. Nice. So, Which is funny, because I'm using his bookmarker for Falcon's Glory. Anyway, I digress. So we're on the bridge of the Enterprise, and it's determined that, the, that Kirk, says that we're going to go ahead and we're going to Kronos because the Decepticons are on their way there to conquer the Klingons. And even though they're Klingons, our duty is to, you know, protect. And so we're going to go. So he tells Optimus Prime we're going. And then we also have to follow the most important law, our prime directive. And Optimus Prime says, then consider this prime's directive. Get it? Optimus uh, Prime, Prime's directive. The first of many puns and jokes in this, uh, in this issue. In this issue, <laughs> and of the dad latest jokes. in a long string in the entire series. <laughs> <laughs> so then we get to Kronos, and we have a uh, the bad guy Transformer. <laughs> His name is Starscream. And he's one of the Decepticons. And in an earlier issue, there was all this battles going on between the Autobots and the Decepticons. And he decided, why am I bothering doing this? Why don't I just go to Cronus and conquer my own world instead of fighting everybody else as a group? I'm going to do it on my own. And of course, the Klingons are like, uh-uh, you aren't taking my planet. And they start, they're not fighting him, but they're just kind of laughing at him like, you can't come in here and take our planet. So what does he do? He shoots these Klingons and is like, huh, there you go. That just shows you I'm in charge. <laughs> but then all of a sudden, he's like, what? Somebody's firing. It must be the Autobots. They followed me here. No, wait, that's not them. It's the Decepticons. And they're like, what are you doing here? You came and did this without us? Damn. And Soundwave, I guess, or whoever kicks him and whatever kicks him down and says, 
I'm in charge now. I'm taking this planet under my control. <laughs> Are you Man, with me? Man, <laughs> I kind of wish we were together reading this for the first time because I would want you to do all the voices and all of this because this is great. I'm just like, I, I didn't, I neglected to make popcorn. I should have uh, settled <laughs> in for this. This is great. <laughs> this is how I read comics. Sometimes I read them out loud like that, honestly. I don't, but anyway, I'm not reading it. I'm just telling you the story because it's a fascinating story. So then, not only that, but then we see the Enterprise as a Transformer, you know, face and all because Kirk's inside. It doesn't look like the Enterprise. It looks like a Transformer Enterprise, which if they did release that as a toy, yeah, baby, this guy's buying that. And they land on Kronos and he comes running and we've got the 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 yellow beetle bug car and every the you know the trucks and everything coming and it's the autobots and not only that but they used the replicators on the enterprise to create these really cool big transformer type suits i guess not suits i mean they're being piloted i guess by spock and scotty and mares and sulu and all of them so they're fighting alongside the autobots too which like that's kind of cool. Did they get to keep those? I mean, they wouldn't take up too much room in the shuttle bay. We need to see those again. I bet they do <laughs> keep them. Yeah, because there's a Transformer that looks like Spock with Spock inside his chest. <laughs> it, you can see him through the window. And yeah, there's a Sulu and stuff. So yeah, they're driving these Autobots of themselves. Somehow Kirk gave the order to create those. And Scotty is like, oh, no, don't make me do that. What was it? He was like saying, um, I don't know. How did they create these things? <laughs> well, they, they basically early on, they're like, uh, how much matter can we replicate or something like that? Yes. And they're revealed how much, later on. How much inorganic matter can a replicator create in that time? And that's when Scotty's mm -hmm. like, Captain, you can't be serious. That was earlier. So anyway, back to where we were with this adventure on Kronos. So they're fighting page after page of fighting. I'm not going to go in detail. <laughs> lots and lots of fighting. <laughs> <laughs> There's just fighting. Lots of uh, cooms and wabooms. And what else we got? Cacooms. <laughs> <laughs> and a scream. And zerms. That's the scream. <laughs> but the scream doesn't affect Klingons. It does. The Klingon ears don't accept that scream to be dangerous. So what do the Klingons do? Surprise! We're decloaking our vessels. And now mm -hmm. we're attacking you, Decepticons. And of course, we get the really great line by the Klingon commander. The Decepticons underestimated us, but they have learned to their detriment that there is more to us than meets the eye. Yeah, We should almost have a little trademark symbol after that, because, yeah. <laughs> yes, I forgot about that, which also reminds me there was a line stated earlier in the comic, and I'm I'm going back to it because I don't know if did you pick up the TOS episode name that was in this? Ah uh, yes, the Operation Annihilate yes. name drop was it was nice. Yes. Yeah. Yes, he's like, yo, as you command, Megatron, Ravage, Laser Beak, Buzzsaw, Rumble, Frenzy, Eject, Eject, Eject. Operation Annihilate! <laughs> How great was yeah. that? See, that's the great thing about Star Trek, are classic lines. Mm -hmm. The lines that us Trekkies repeat over and over all the time. <laughs> of course. And, you know, I th think we all know, the Klingons, of course, turn the tables on them and stuff. 
and we get another great line right at the very end of the of the entire mini series here do you want to do the honors for what kirk says when uh saying goodbye to the transformers so yes kirk says indeed we do we'll keep that hailing frequency wide open now if you'll forgive me i'll say goodbye with a twist on my first officer's preferred saying live long autobots and roll out hey <laughs> yes that happened and it's such a funny uh joke that spock even smirks a little bit at it here so <laughs> he does yep they're uh they're very proud of that line clearly. and which was really <laughs> weird to me is that the autobots still have a duplicate enterprise that they're flying off in mm-hmm. i mean you know if i could do that i'd keep it too that's pretty cool i know but now <laughs> we know that there's two enterprises out there yeah <laughs> one's got a little transformers logo on it though so you'll be able to tell it apart that's true this is just calling for a sequel by the way that's the thing that's it's the end this is the last issue number five is the last issue uh and then idw and cbs have both announced that these issues are canon so (laughs) you know it's serious you gotta take this seriously people no of course they're not (laughs) they're just for fun they're not canon but if they were I, I'd have an issue with that. <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended. Exactly. <laughs> yes. No pun intended. That's the end of that issue. So, by the way, final thoughts on Star Trek versus Transformers, the whole series. Um, It's an interesting diversion. It, I'm not the hugest fan of it, but that's also partially because I was never the biggest fan of the Transformers. But for what it is, for just having fun, I kind of appreciate it. Uh, on one level, I can kind of appreciate these two worlds coming together because they have a similar kind of uh, ethical outlook. If you think about how the Transformers view things that, you know, they're dedicated to peace and stopping the Decepticons from, you know, destroying other worlds and that sort of thing kind of meshes well with the Federation's idea of, of you know, do no harm and all that stuff. So, you know, that's kind of nice that philosophically we get a little bit of meshing there um i'm probably looking at it too deep and can say you know if you're a fan of the transformers and you're a star trek fan you'll get some uh, some fun out of this the fact that it's also the animated series i appreciated because i don't i think that doesn't get as much love as it deserves so good to see that yeah i agree i would love to see more comics based on the animated series not necessarily along with transformers but just the animated series on its own I think that would be a lot of fun. But yeah, I agree with you. It's it's a fun read. And it, yeah, it's not supposed to be taken seriously. But you know, there's one thing about this that really stands out in my mind. I remember when we started the first issue and even going to the second, I felt like the stories were more Star Trek centric and less Transformers. Mm-hmm. But the further we get along, it's reversed. I know these last couple issues have felt more Transformers centric than star trek like this issue felt to me like i was reading a transformers comic with some star trek in it where the first issue felt like a star trek comic with some transformers in it yeah exactly this this felt very transformery you know the fact that we're going to the klingon homeworld gives it a little bit more of a star trek part but yeah it was really you know this was the culmination of the saturday morning transformers episode where there's the big huge fight and you know everybody goes home at the end kind of thing so yeah 
Yep. Well, I feel like I've learned more about Transformers, which I appreciate because now I feel like I can talk more about Autobots and Decepticons more than ever before. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) So that being said, let's go to our reviews from listeners that were posted on Facebook. And this is in relation to episode number 259 of Literary Treks. That episode title is, He's Gotta Grow Some and Just Do It. So, this was an episode where we talked with Amy Nelson about the novel by Peter David, Imzadi 2, Triangle. Actually, Triangle, Imzadi 2, in that order. (laughs) So, we start off here with a comment from Clayton Husted, and it says, I just started reading this. Well, Clayton, I hope you finished it, is all I have to say. Oh, yes, because then, okay, he does comment, because Amy says, oh, let me know if you like it. He says, we'll do. And then he comments, finish the book. Pretty good read, like all Peter David's books. I was not a fan of the Worf-Deanna relationship, probably because of her relationship with Riker seen in the movies that come out after this book was written. And I think we, all three of us, would agree to that. And it's interesting because Amy liked the relationship with Worf and Deanna, but this book convinced her that that relationship would have never worked. Yeah, I agree. Um, And yeah, I was never a huge proponent of the Worf-Deanna relationship. On rewatches, I think it works a little better. Um, But, you know, I I think everybody has past relationships, even though they they end up with who they end up with. So I I think in my older age, I'm a little bit more tolerant of this relationship. And not every relationship works out. I think it worked out about as well as uh, it should (laughs) have. Yeah, I think so. That's all I'll say. (laughs) I think we're satisfied with that. So, Justin Ozer comments, Great discussion. I'm part of the probably very small minority that likes Imzadi 2 more than Imzadi. I mentioned on the previous post about Imzadi that I think Young Riker comes off as a stalker in that novel, which affects how I feel about it. While Imzadi 2 does have the issue of not seeing things from Troy's perspective, I really enjoyed it overall. Like Amy, I'm a fan of Troy and Worf being together during Season 7, but I like how the novel upended that for me and showed all of the reasons it wouldn't work in the end. I also love some of the craziness in the novel, and I went with it. So definitely agree uh, with those comments. Um, I enjoyed Imzadi too. I think I still really enjoy Imzadi a lot more, but I understand people's issues with that for sure. Uh, Justin also says, you mentioned that Gowron talks about a female head of Worf's house. I wasn't able to find anything about what that means either. It may just be Peter David wanting to put a female head of a Klingon house, but it would make more sense if it's a specific reference. If you find out the reference, let us know. Still nothing on that front. I have no idea what he's talking about in that book. I have no idea either, <laughs> and I'm disappointed that no one has been able to come up with that answer for us. So if anybody's listening now, if you know during the time of shortly after Generations, who was in charge of Worf's house... We know it's a female, so I don't know who's the head of the Klingon house that Worf belongs to. I always thought it was Worf. <laughs> I did too. I Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm all confused. Um, okay, so Patrick Carlin says, James Swallows, the Poison Chalice, has a reference to this book with a scene with Tom Riker, Nog, and Tuvok. Nog says he heard rumors that Tom worked for the Tau Shar, and Tom pops into the room saying, that's just going to keep coming back to haunt me, isn't it? 
The scene ends with him saying, and for the record, I was never in bed with the Tal Shiar. I was just in bed with one of them. I, that's so cool that you brought that connection out of the Poison Chalice by James Swallow. That's so cool, Patrick. I really love that kind of stuff. That is really great. I uh, I did, of course, read the Poison Chalice when it came out. Not having read this novel, I think that reference just sailed right over my head. I don't even remember seeing that. But that's so great that there's that connection there. Yes, I love it. Me too. Well, Patrick also says that he loves in the book when Worf said to Data about pushing Dr. Crusher into the water. That was funny. Damn funny. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And Patrick was like, yeah, when I first read that part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to agree with that. I, I always thought that was hilarious. You know, Jordy, come on. I mean, I understand Crusher's ticked, but Data, that was not funny. Oh, come on, Jordy. That was a little funny. <laughs> you know, I always found Jordy to be somewhat of a party pooper. You know, a little bit, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't think he and I would hang out very well together because I feel like I would just having a good time. and He'd be like, Bruce, come on, calm down. Just like, hey, chill out. I'll be like, oh, all right, whatever. Mm -hmm. Anyway, bit of a wet blanket, that guy sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> wet blanket LaForge. <laughs> that's what they used to call him at the Academy. To be fair, I think that's LaForge. LeVar Burton, on the other hand, seems like he'd be the like just the coolest person to hang out with. You know, we need to find out. Maybe a STLV or some convention will try to hang out with LeVar Burton and tell him that would be cool. Tell him that. Look, <laughs> I know you're probably sick of talking Star Trek all weekend at the convention. Let's talk reading Rainbow. Let's go out for a drink. <laughs> Did you ever watch Community? I have seen some, but not all the episodes. Oh, there's an episode with LeVar Burton in it. I haven't seen that. And oh man, you, you should try and find that one. It's great. I'm mostly for um, Donald Glover's uh, performance in that episode, but LeVar Burton's just awesome. I love that guy. Okay. I'm making a note to watch Community, that episode. Okay. Got it. <laughs> All right. Well, we've talked about Transformers. We've talked about Worf and Deanna. And then we talked about community. So I think it's time we go to the feature and talk about Falcon's glory. I agree completely. Oh, let's live long and roll out. <laughs> so, Dan, we're getting ready to review Falcon's glory by DC Fontana. Did you realize that as we were reading this book, it was the 30th anniversary from the publication date? I did not. And I see that you put that on our notes outline here. And that's incredible. That's really cool. I hadn't, I hadn't, that hadn't occurred to me. Yeah, this was not planned. As a matter of fact, I finished reading the book. And when I was putting some notes together to discuss on the show, I wanted to look at when it was published. And it said February 1989. And as we record this, and as we were reading the book, it's February of 2019. And I thought, and today's the last day of February. So we're getting it just under the wire there. <laughs> just under the wire. So yeah, pretty exciting. So yeah, Vulcan's Glory, a TOS novel came out in 1989 by DC or also known as Dorothy Fontana. And yeah, she has written for Star Trek, uh, the original series, even the next generation. But um, this book is number 44 in the numbered books that Pocket Books had published in the 80s and going into the 90s. 
And this also is the first novel dedicated to the crew of Pike and Number One and so on and so forth. So this is a very interesting book to cover, especially now, because we have now seen Pike, Number One, and Spock or whatever into Discovery. At least we're we're halfway through season two as of this recording. So we haven't seen, we've mostly seen Pike at this point. Mm-hmm. So, and for the record, Bruce, I'm given to understand has seen Spock in discovery in the trailers. I have not in the trailers. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm trying not to spoil anything for you, Dan. That I know. I know he's in that. Ep- I know he's in that episode that that's that I know. So, uh, <laughs> But uh, I have not. I'm I'm one episode behind where Bruce is right now. So you know, I love that feeling <laughs> of power I have over you right now. <laughs> Enjoy it while it lasts, Bucko. Yes, and that episode is the seventh episode of the season, and it's Light and Shadows. So that's the episode that I've seen that Dan hasn't seen as of this recording. But anyway, I'm not bitter. It's fine. You're not bitter. Okay. <laughs> Actually, let me tell you this one thing about that episode. No, I'm kidding. Oh, I'm logging off right now. (laughs) No, what I'm going to tell you about is Vulcan's Glory. So, Dan, let me ask you, when is the first time you read this book? Or is this the first time you read this book? This is actually the first time that I've read this novel. I've never read it before uh, the month of February 2019. So this was all fresh to me, all brand new. You have an original publication. I do. Um, I picked it up at a used bookstore at some point along the line. (laughs) Excellent. Okay, so this is the second time I've read this novel. I read this, uh, I don't know, probably sometime during the 90s, probably the early to mid-90s. Not when it first came out, because in 89 I wasn't reading Star Trek novels at that point. But And I also have an original publication. Mine's a U.S. one and yours is a Canadian one. We established that before the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's this weird period where I, I think Pocket Books must have had a Canadian imprint because uh, it's got a little maple leaf that says published in Canada on it. Uh, the other novel we did last year, um, the first TNG novel, Ghost Chip by Diane Carey, had the same thing. And I'm sure there's more in my collection that do, but these are the only two I've noticed that has that have that. Yeah, it's really interesting. It was a short run of that, I guess. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, even though this is only the second time I've read this novel, I have gone back and reread sections of this book over time. So, Hmm. because there's a lot of significance to this book in the fact that DC Fontana, having written for Star Trek, has put some things in here about Spock and number one and Pike that I always kind of consider semi-canon in a sense, since she was a writer for Star Trek and helped to develop uh, especially Spock's character throughout the original series. Yeah, it was kind of on the other side of the page we were talking a little bit. It's kind of like when Jerry Taylor uh, uh, wrote those two novels, um, Mosaic for Captain Janeway and Pathways for the rest of the Voyager crew. They were never called canon, but they were always kind of on this weird uh, soft canon thought because they're written by one of the writers and executive producers of the show. So, you know, you could kind of almost think of this the same way. Um, They're not canon because books aren't canon, but the writers may be a little more authoritative than your typical Star Trek writer. 
Yeah, and I will say that I don't think this book contradicts anything that is currently considered canon. So it mm-hmm. works. Uh, so yeah, it definitely fits right in with the continuity quite well. Absolutely. And starting off with this book, Spock is relaxing on a beach in Hawaii. He was ordered to do that by his now former Captain Daniels. He Spock was serving on the USS Artemis, and he was now transferring to the Enterprise. So this is Spock's first adventure on the Enterprise, which he'll serve under Captain Pike. And he rec- and Spock, while he's on the beach, then receives a message from his father, Sarek, to return to Vulcan. I think actually he received the message when he was getting ready to board the Enterprise or shortly after he board the Enterprise for his first mission. Sarek tells Spock, once Spock arrives onto Vulcan, that, well, Sarek doesn't really talk to Spock in this novel. He communicates to Spock through his wife, Amanda, which is a little mm-hmm. weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little weird, but even back in these early days, the writers were kind of jumping through hoops to make sure that nothing contradicted canon. Because when Spock, when Spock's parents show up in Journey to Babel, it's very, very clearly said by Amanda that Sarah and Spock have not spoken in 18 years. So <laughs> they come very close here. But DC Fontana, I mean, she knows her Star Trek, right? And she wrote that episode. Uh, so she knows that she can't have Sarah and Spock speaking at this moment. And I always feel there is a little bit of an out here because... Amanda actually says uh, Sarek and Spock have not spoken as father and son in 18 years. So, I mean, you have a little loophole there if they speak not as father and son, but she's playing it safe and sticking to canon and having them not speak at all. Yeah. And (laughs) one of the reasons they're not speaking is because Sarek is disappointed in Spock. This is why he is communicating through Amanda about his disappointment. And that is the fact that Spock has not gone through with his wedding to Depring. He's been, you know, this was an arrangement that was made when they were children And they're supposed to get married at some point, and they haven't done that in a timely manner. Of course, Spock is like, well, I've been busy with my Starfleet career. I went off to the Academy, and and now I'm part of Starfleet. I have missions. I just haven't had time to come back and and marry to Pring. And he's like, well, you know, it's, it's about time. And this is all going on. Again, Spock's like in another room with like something in Amanda's ear and she's repeating to Spock. It's really kind of an odd situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's definitely jumping through hoops to, to adhere to the strict definition of Canon here. But yeah, it's, (laughs) I mean, Sarek is kind of a jerk. I mean, that's kind of how he's been portrayed generally in Star Trek in the past. And you know, if he's not going to speak to Spock, darn it, he's not going to speak to Spock. So he's, yeah, he's definitely, he's being as much of a jerk as a Vulcan can be. But, you know, the thing is, the first couple chapters of this book, I think it's interesting how DC Fontana borrows so much on Spock's backstory that she developed in the animated series in the episode Yesteryear. And that's the episode where we see a grown Spock meeting young Spock on Vulcan and, and we establish so much backstory about Spock's life as, as a youth growing up on Vulcan and his pet and all that stuff. 
And so a lot of that is worked into this, including what she has established, like you were saying, the father and son not speaking established in Journey to Babel in the original series. So there was a lot of stuff here where I felt like, you know, here's this author who's established these points on the character of Spock. And now she's writing about these backstories into his character within this novel. And I just thought that was really cool. Yeah, I agree. I think the, that backstory works really well. And, uh, you know, the animated series, it's not all great. Um, sorry, Aaron Harvey. Uh, but if you're going to only watch one episode of the animated series, Yesteryear is an excellent episode of Star Trek, animated or otherwise. So, um, and the fact that it was written by DC Fontana as well uh, works really well in its favor here. And it does establish a lot for the character of Spock. And I actually really like when I was reading these parts of the novel and that it was just so directly referencing that episode, like it brought a smile to my face. I really enjoyed that. So that was really cool. Yeah, I did too. Um, and just to mention uh, the animated series, Recently, this month, February of 2019, the Patrons Roundtable uh, discusses the animated series. So if anybody's interested in that, uh, check it out. Go to trek.fm to find that episode. So now we also see in this book, as I mentioned earlier, this is the first novel that was published centered around Captain Pike. And again, because Pike is in Discovery and we decide to do not just this novel, but coming up in the next you know, few months or so, we're going to be reviewing other Captain Pike novels and relate those to what we see on Discovery. But before we do that with this one, so we see Pike and he's on the Enterprise and we get some backstory on Pike, which I found interesting. Not too interesting, but just interesting that we're getting backstory on him, that he had uh, this woman that he was dating and they were very close and they were in the academy together. And then he leaves to do his Starfleet career. And when he comes back, we discover that his love has now moved on and has found someone else. And so it just showed to me that this character, the way he reacted to that, he had his heart was broken. But at the same time, I felt like it explains why Pike is maybe a loner. If that makes any sense. I mean, we don't see much of Pike in the original series outside of the cage. So we Mm -hmm. don't really know what his love life is like anyway. But this kind of suggests that he is a loner, that he had this one woman he was in love with. And that's kind of it. His love is in his career. Yeah, he's there's something I've always felt, uh, especially with Jeffrey Hunter's performance in the cage, something very melancholy about Pike. And in that episode, we get some reasons for that he's you know suffered uh some losses recently and lost some crew members and is feeling jaded but even beyond that i always felt there's kind of just this quiet not brooding but just this yeah this kind of melancholy um not entirely satisfied with how things are going but at the same time not you know bitter about it just kind of kind of brooding about it i guess <laughs> i don't know it's hard to escape that word but um, I, I've always liked that characterization of him here, and I think this fits in really well with that as well. Just kind of adding another layer to Pike, because yeah, beyond the Telosians wanting Pike to mate with someone to create offspring, we don't see anything with regards to Pike's 
uh, love life or romantic interests. So it's kind of neat to get that aspect of it here. And it's just something I hadn't thought of before, but it fits really well with what we've seen of him. Yeah. And this is fairly early on in the book. Uh, his girlfriend was Janice Carlisle. I mean, this isn't a character that we've seen anywhere else before, but there's some backstory for you there that uh, Pike had this love interest in his youth when he was at the Academy. So now the other thing I like about this book is the backstory on number one. As a matter of fact, this is one of those things that I used to go back and reread a couple times because hmm. I really felt like this may be the real answer to who number one is as canon as we could get at this point when this book was published. There was an episode this past year or so on the Trek Files podcast with Larry Nemechek where he interviewed Dorothy Fontana and she explained the backstory of number one as apparently it was intended to be by Gene Ronberry and the writers of the original series. And what she explained on that show is what the backstory and the explanation of number one is in this book. So I mm -hmm. thought this is as canon as probably as you can, can get, but now that we have discovery exploring number one, and at this point of this recording recording, we've only seen number one once, <laughs> Hmm. number one once, but um, anyway, so number one, her name is number one. It's not Una, which kind of means one which the authors have played with so it's still kind of keeping in that and it's not mm -hmm. anything else there's been some other names that have been flowed out there in certain literature hinted at or maybe this maybe that whatever but it, her name really is number one because she comes from this planet Illyria and we find out that her name isn't pronounceable like we can't us humans can't pronounce her name but there's like this ranking system in like brilliance and intelligence and stuff and she was ranked number one so therefore she goes by that because i think in some respects her name that's unpronounceable refers to or kind of leads you to think that she is that rank that it means number one so anyway she's called number one and that's her name and so far from what we saw in discovery it sounds like they're keeping to that Mm -hmm. Yeah, there hasn't been another name floated on Discovery. Uh, like you said, some of the recent novels have gone with Commander Una, uh, which is, if I'm remembering correctly, they explain a name she's kind of adopted because she got tired of people just calling her number one or something like that. But it's still referring to this backstory of her being the best of the best, being perfect from Illyria, which is a planet that embraces... Uh, genetic manipulation, I think, and, and, you know, that sort of thing and, and breeding for the absolute best. And she was number one in her generation or something like that. Uh, so I, I really like that most of the novels that I've read anyway, have kind of honored this backstory and stuck with it. There's been, there been a few, I think John Burns Starfleet crew or Star Trek crew went with a different backstory and i think she was commander robinson in that or something like that but for the most part the novels that i've read all kind of stick with this backstory which i've always really liked and uh it's it's interesting that this is i mean if dorothy fontana as she said it gene roddenberry was the uh the originator of this but this is the earliest that it was presented in a novel or something like that so i really appreciate the fact that i got to read this because i've read this backstory before briefly in other novels so it's kind of neat to see where it came from the one thing though that i find a little 
odd at first and and I've got through it as I was getting through the novel that it was okay but if her name is number one at least that's what she's going by on this crew everyone refers to her as number one and she's the first officer and no one is referring to her as commander or commander number one so when I hear the crew (laughs) the crewmen they were like lieutenants or ensigns or whatever and refer to her directly as number one I think shouldn't they be calling her commander and not just number one? Like you don't hear on the original series, them call Spock Spock. They'll say Mr. Spock at least, but mm. you know, you don't hear Sulu saying, Hey Spock, what should we do about the blah, 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 you know? So I thought it, it kind of sounded a little weird to me, but then after a while I thought, well, maybe she just says, you know, since I am first officer and I am, number one as first just call me number one you don't need to call me commander i always wonder when this comes up what her earlier starfleet career was like because i feel like that would be really strange as a captain like greeting your crew be like uh ensign jameson ensign spock ensign number one ensign number one like what was she cadet number one how how did that work in like athletic competitions (laughs) (laughs) and in second place number one (laughs) and no be very confusing i feel like there could be a star trek sitcom where the recurring joke every episode is some mix-up with number one's name (laughs) i'm going to (laughs) in my head canon right now and i'm not going to say that i'm going to keep with this but i'm just going to say well maybe she uh, is referred to as number one because that's really what her rank is and what her name is from her planet. But then because of those reasons you're saying, she decided, well, I'll go by Una in those situations. Mm-hmm. And well, and just to have a last name, I'll give myself Robbins. So it'll be Una Robbins. But then when she gets to be yeah. first officer and Pike's calling her number one, everyone just adopts back to going with number one. I don't know. <laughs> That works for me. I, I kind of like that they did in the more recent novels give her the name of Una because to me that does make sense. Like it, it makes sense that being called number one all the time, this is kind of silly unless I'm the first officer. So, you know, I think in in the uh, Legacies trilogy, for example, she's the captain of a starship. So is she calling her first officer number one and the first officer is responding back to her captain number one <laughs> like i just no no go with una una is good i'll, I'll, I'll we'll go with una well i think I like that's that. why the writers of Le- the legacy trilogy and since have kept with una because of that reason if she's a captain mm-hmm. in your novels you don't want to say captain number one <laughs> like we get it you're the best you're the captain fine captain number one or when there's like a (laughs) captain convention they're like she's like hi i'm captain number one and somebody's like okay well then i'm captain number two (laughs) (laughs) get a load of the ego on her jeez (laughs) wants everyone to call her number one (laughs) this is from a dr seuss book we got thing one thing two (laughs) anyway so, okay, let's talk about Pike and number one uh, in a different context now, because we talked about them within the novel, but now let's talk about how we feel about these characters in the novel as related to what we've seen on the original series from The Cage, but also on Discovery. And when 
were we picturing Jeffrey Hunter or Anson Mount, for example? Like, you know, what, where do you go f- on this, Dan? Where do you line your imagination of these characters when you're reading the book? Well, I, I have to say, and I mean, you could really break this apart. Like, what uniforms are, are they wearing? What does the Enterprise look like? All that kind of stuff. Um, I was mostly picturing Jeffrey Hunter in this just because to me, this took place before the cage. So it just kind of fit well with that. And like with the cage style uniforms, because in my mind, you can still make it work that they were wearing the cage style uniforms. And then they transitioned to the ones, the one that we see, uh, Pike wearing in the premiere episode of discovery season two, and, you know, so you can still all make that work if you really need to fit that in in your head. So, yeah, I was picturing Jeffrey Hunter. I was also mostly picturing Majel Barrett because we just got that one scene with Rebecca Romaine. And, you know, I, it just kind of fit a little better for me. The one thing that did kind of work well is Spock at one point walks into his quarters and comments on how spacious they are and how, you know, big the space is. And I was like... Oh, I kind of pictured the glimpse that we get of Spock's quarters in, in that episode of Discovery Brother, because this is where I get like, okay, you can really pick apart the canon and really make it all fit. In the uh, cage, we learn that the crew complement of the Enterprise at that time is 203 or something like that, around 200. And then Kirk's time, it's 400 and some. So in my mind, they like shrunk all the quarters and doubled people up and made them smaller for Kirk's Enterprise, which is why they look smaller there than they did, than Spock's did in Discovery. So I was like kind of picturing the way it looked in Discovery for when Spock was in his quarters. Yeah, I thought that too. And I also thought maybe because, of course, Discovery wasn't out when this novel was written, but I wondered if, why would DC Fontana say that his quarters are are big or very seem very large. And I thought, well, maybe because when you see Pike's quarters on in the cage in the menagerie, that's much larger than what we saw of Kirk. So I just wonder if she was mm-hmm. thinking the same thing you are. Well, it was a smaller complement of crew members on the enterprise during Pike's time. And we saw Pike's quarters. So they were much larger than, and now, you know, by the time we get to Kirk's era, they're smaller. So, but yeah, I was, which I really like as an explanation like that. Just, I'm just like, it all fits. That's awesome. It really (laughs) does. And I even thought that at the time when we saw that episode of brother on, um, discovery, because I thought, well, those quarters are bigger. I'm like, wow, that makes sense. Cause pikes were bigger too. (laughs) But, Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I was picturing Anson Mount most of the time. Because I've been seeing him so much lately, and I really love his portrayal of the character. There were times I saw Jeffrey Hunter, but most of the time it was Anson Mount. And when it came to number one, it was Majel Barrett, because Rebecca Romaine, we haven't seen much at this point. So it was Mm -hmm. hard for me. I tried to at one point, but it just wasn't working, because I just haven't seen her that much, as much as I've seen Majel Barrett, because for years I've been watching The Cage with her in it. But I love that you mentioned the uniforms. Because this, I, this is why I like reading novels, because I can vi- envision it the way I want to. But I pictured Spock in the Discovery uniform. Oh, okay. As he was boarding when, the Enterprise. Yes. 
before he joined the Enterprise. Me too. Really? And like his his old captain and stuff and, and like the base personnel and stuff. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. I thought that was really cool. And in the scene <laughs> that you were talking about of him entering his quarters, it says that he went to his closet and put up, he, he was hanging his new Enterprise uniform. It was something oh, to affect that I, he put, I kind of missed He was that. hanging up his new uniform. I was like, yeah, because his new uniform are the Enterprise uniforms, which look different. I like it. That's cool. <laughs> which, of course, in Desperate See, Hours by David, yeah, in Desperate Hours by David Mack, he even says that the Enterprise uniforms are different than the Discovery uniforms. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Yep, it all works. It doesn't have to, but it does. <laughs> yeah. See, you know, people kind of freak out when things are a little bit different, but you know, we we've been doing this for years as Star Trek fans. Every time there's a little continuity thing, you just put a little work into like making it work in your head and you know star trek as a franchise being over 50 years old holds together pretty well like it's there's some rickety areas with some scotch tape on them and a little bit you know <laughs> but for the most part you can make it work you just have to squint a little and and, and make it all fit ah love as it. scotty would say it's close enough <laughs> <laughs> As any good engineer would say. <laughs> so then let's get to then what this whole story is in this book. It's not just about backstories, but, you know, actually there's a story that's involved in here. And so Pike and number one in command of the Enterprise, they're on this mission to Arita to help in the trading efforts of these three isolated populations on the planet. There was like some Holocaust thing or something that kept them separated. And we'll go a little more into that later. And this will be the second time that Pike has visited the planet. He was there prior helping out with uh, helping these different populations in, in trading, as I mentioned earlier in their trading efforts. So as they're on their way there, they then get diverted to find a lost Vulcan transport ship that was carrying a historical artifact called the Vulcan's glory. And so now this is a, an emerald big green emerald that was from centuries ago on Vulcan. When Vulcans were at war with each other, it was symbolized as a prize of war, but then as peace came about, it was now a symbol of peace. So this is the MacGuffin of this novel. And so, Dan, I was just wondering, what do you think about Vulcans honoring this emerald as a symbol of peace and years ago being a prize of war? And this is something that is being protected and it's on this transport ship. I kind of I appreciated the explanation they gave in the novel that, you know, at first it was something that was fought over and, and all this sort of stuff. But then, you know, all of Vulcan kind of came together. And it was treated as like a symbol of them coming together. Um, why exactly? Probably because they had to <laughs> or they'd keep fighting. So, you know, it, it, it's one of those things where, you know, history is revised a little bit and, you know, things change. I thought it was kind of realistic that something like that would come to symbolize something different. I mean, you see examples of that in human history all the time, right? You know, something that meant you know, something very different centuries ago can come to mean something very different today. So I, I appreciated it. I think um, the Vulcans, we usually think of them as inherently logical and like always making logical decisions and, and doing things, you know, 
totally out of uh, logic and rationality. But if you look at things like how they handle marriages and all that sort of stuff, I, I always say, for example, if the episode Amok Time had been written in the modern Star Trek era and not in the original series, people would like throw up their hands and say, that's ridiculous. The Vulcans would never act like that. Like, how can you even say it goes totally against canon and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, the Vulcans have this history of not exactly being rational when it comes to their past and kind of incorporating things from their past into their present, even though maybe to an outsider, it doesn't look completely logical, but to the Vulcans, it makes sense. The Vulcans seem to be into symbolism a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of think that maybe at first when I heard this, I thought it doesn't really seem that logical. But as you were stating, it's like, well, that is kind of keeping with the Vulcans. And I can see that if this emerald was something that was used centuries ago as a prize for war, and now that they're at peace, that this becomes a symbol of peace in the fact that it reminds them that this is something that survived just like they did. And it's a reminder of where they came from. And so I can see where there's an importance in this symbol for them, that it's the transition from war to peace. So it's, I, I think it works well in this, in that there's this family that is protecting the Emerald because it means a lot to the Vulcans, which again, we'll get into which now means that we're going to get more into spoiler territory. So if you don't want to hear anything else, then this is the point that you stop, read the book, and then you come back. Okay. So <laughs> it's a quick read and a very good read. So yeah, it's just under uh, 300 pages. That's mm -hmm. actually, if I'm looking at now, 252 pages. So now let's go to the planet Arita where Pike was. There's a story involved there. So we're going to skip over the Vulcan's glory at this point, but this is going to connect to that in a moment. So there's this daughter of the nomads that is getting together with the son of the town folk. This is those, you know, we've got these different, the, we got the different isolated populations. And so this is what we're getting to here. It's the Romeo and Juliet of the story. Okay. And the two run, want to run away together. And of course they're both their fathers upset. How can my daughter go with a town folk guy? And how can my son go with the woman of nomads and all this stuff? So they end up running away and they're out, you know, kind of isolated area with each other. And, you know, they're, I guess, kind of kissing and having a picnic. I don't know, whatever they're doing. And then all of a sudden they're kidnapped and taken away by the mutants. That's the third group. So these three groups don't get along. But as we find out, as the story goes on, because our Enterprise crew comes down and because Pike is helping with the whole trading thing, He's hearing them complain about, you know, uh, my chocolate got in his peanut butter. No, your peanut butter got my <laughs> chocolate. And they're like, oh, we'll find your son and daughter. And they find it with the mutants and they go and they start trying to rescue them. But the kids are like, no, we don't want to be rescued. We're fine being with the mutants because they're allowing us to be who we want to be. And they are making us their ambassadors to try to try to help out the relations between the people, all three people. And so Pike's like, oops. Uh, okay. I guess we didn't have to come and be brutal. Like we were with these mutants. On this. <laughs> 
So anyway, did this story work for you, Dad? Of course, the, you know, they, they get together and everything's fine. But anyway, did this story work for you? I actually really like this story. And at, at first, when Pike beams down and there's this squabbling going on, I was kind of like, really? Like, this is, we're going to get involved in this? Like, you know, I don't, I don't like where this is going. And we've got, like we said, these three groups, this planet has gone through a nuclear holocaust and only now centuries later are things kind of getting back on their feet. Like you said, the nomads and the the villagers and the mutants who it's it's funny, we they Pike talks a lot about establishing trade routes and stuff between the villagers and the nomads to kind of kickstart civilization and stuff. And the mutants are mentioned as kind of living in these hinterlands that no one else will go to because of, you know, radiation and all that kind of stuff. And even though that's kind of died down, they've still been affected by that and um, are isolated. And I didn't give it much thought because you're reading and you're like, oh, the mutants, they're they're horrible. They're, you know, badly affected and savage and all this kind of stuff. And this story really turns that on its head because the mutants have actually created a great society mining things that the other people don't have access to and creating products and all this kind of stuff. And you realize, oh, they've been totally neglected because they look horrific and, you know, the idea of them is kind of scary. But if you look closer, they're not what they appear to be and they're actually quite civilized and well on the way to you know, building back up society. And they may in fact be the key to creating a new unified world here as, you know, they have these two kids as their ambassadors that kind of bring everyone together. So by the time that was resolved with, with that in the end, I thought this is great. Like what a great Star Trek message that just because something looks horrific to our eyes doesn't mean that it's evil or bad you know, these guys are probably the most civilized people on the planet at this point. And I thought that was wonderful. And, uh, you know, the fact that they were just overlooked for the first half of the story and, and weren't, didn't even figure into Pike's mission at all, other than something to be avoided, I think really spoke a lot to our prejudices as human beings. I, I thought that was brilliant. Before the landing party beamed down, I thought it was weird when number one said, okay, gather up, uh, whatever four or five aliens to beam down and i was like wait why is number one saying beam down aliens like that almost sounds like maybe a bit racist to me or something like you know and then i thought well she's not really technically human from earth is so does she's just kind of looking like well everybody on this ship is an alien so beam beam four or five aliens down but then i realized what it was is the mutants that you know, they were trying to send people down that look different than, I guess, humans. Because mm -hmm. I, I assume the others, the town folks and the nomads look human-like. Yeah, that seems to be the default, right? right? Everyone just looks human. And then there's the alien-looking aliens. Right. So the alien-looking aliens beam down <laughs> to, the, to the mutants. And, of course, they're perceived as mutants because they all look different. So... Um, but what I found interesting about this is how well the three groups then came together very easily as if, you know, there was one point where it mentioned that they're separated by walls, like, you know, their community, one of the communities has like walls around them and they don't really venture outside of that. But once they're all put together, 
and there's some squabbling for a little while between the nomads and the and the town folk but really it goes away quickly when they realize that the two kids are missing and mm-hmm. then they start getting along fine because they have this common goal of trying to find the children but and not young children but like young adults i should say mm-hmm. but then even the mutants are very more civilized, like you said, and are willing to try to get along with the others so they can trade goods and services with each other so that living on this planet becomes easier and more supportive. And they quickly meld together very well. And I thought, if anything, what the message to me was, once you're separated and you're not talking to one another, you can suspect that there's something wrong or different or strange about the other. But as soon as you meet that person, all of a sudden you start to realize, huh, we have some things in common. They're not that bad. Absolutely. It wasn't like the typical Star Trek novel sometimes where, oh, the two races or the two groups meet and they squabble for a while. And then in a war, it takes Kirk or Picard or whoever to show them that they have more in common. It didn't take Pike to show them. They saw it on their own. Yeah. And I really appreciated that. Like, that's that's a really cool it's and like you said it's the shared jeopardy of of them losing their kids that initially make them kind of come together and 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 help each other the villagers and the nomads and then i really liked how the mutants played it too they you know they approached and and they had you know they just laid out their products and all this kind of stuff they didn't push anything they didn't you know try and you know, argue their case or anything. They just kind of said, we're here. We're willing to uh, barter with you guys. And we think you guys might be interested. And of course they're like, huh, this is not what I expected. And like you said, even just kind of being near them and, and seeing that they're very much like them, even though they look very different, they're still, they're, they're the same species and they're the same, you know, they're all the same people and they get along really well. I thought that was really good. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, for those reasons, I think uh, we really like this book, not just in the backstories that we are receiving on Captain Pike and Number One and Spock, but just this story with these people on this planet. Um, but now that gets us to the glory, going back to that. Now, remember earlier I said about the glory was being transported. And for the life of me right now, I don't remember why it was being transported. Do you remember? <laughs> I can't remember either. <laughs> we can't remember why it was being transported. But it, it was being transported in protection. There was some reason they were protecting it in the transport for some reason. And I, I, I don't recall why. But the ship has gone missing. And that's why the Enterprise is going to try to find the ship and see what happened to the ship and therefore the glory. And then they found that a escape pod was jettisoned from the ship and landed on this planet. They were, they originally going to anyway, to help with the trade Mm -hmm. negotiations. So that's why they're back on the planet and not just dealing with these uh, three different groups of people who weren't getting along and trying to get them to trade, which now that is working, but they were also there to try to find the glory. So anyway, without getting in too much details of stuff, they do find Vulcan's glory. They bring it to the Enterprise and it's being guarded because they have to return it to Vulcan. And the Vulcans on the ship, there are m- multiple Vulcans. Sometimes I've read books where it implies that Spock is the first and only Vulcan in Starfleet at the time of the original mm-hmm. series. Which is 
always been wrong ever since the original series. And that's one of those what they call fanon, you know, a fan's idea of canon that has crept its way into some books sometimes. But it's just not true. There's a whole starship of Vulcans in one episode that's of right. the original series. So anyway, yes. one of my little pet peeves. <laughs> well, and if you really want to work it in that he is the first Vulcan of Starfleet, you can just assume the other Vulcans are non-commissioned officers. Hmm. Anyway. Well, it doesn't work anymore because there's a Vulcan Admiral in Discovery. That's true. Anyway. And Discovery's canon. <laughs> and Tabal just... was in Starfleet. Oh. <laughs> Freaking canon. Freaking fandom. Oh, we're all just messed up. Anyway. <laughs> so anyway, there's these, there's multiple Vulcans on the ship. And they say that, well, don't examine the glory. It's supposed to be protected. You know, just put it away until we get to Vulcan. Well, what starts to happen is... It's being guarded by a security officer, and then this other officer, Meadows, comes to Reed, who's guarding the glory, and says, oh, hey, um, Pike, uh, I got a signature here saying that I can examine the glory, even though this guy has been like on them, like, oh, just let me look at it. Oh, let me examine it. Let me run it. And Pike's like, no, no, no. Number one's like, no, no, no. The Vulcans don't want anybody to do it. So he forges Pike's signature. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of funny because I'm thinking, do they still sign things in the 23rd century? <laughs> they do. That's uh, you see that all the time when somebody hands Kirk a fuel consumption report or whatever, and he signs off on it and stuff. Yeah, like Janice so, Rand brings them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Meadows is found dead, murdered, and the glory is missing. Who murdered Meadows? Well, we come to find out through Spock helping to investigate that Meadows was killed in an ancient Vulcan technique. And I don't remember what it's called, but almost like a death grip type thing. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a strangulation of some kind. So the the one in, in the original series Journey to Babel was called Talshaya and that was like snapping their neck. But this one's strangling and it's a different name, but I can't remember what it was called either. But it has to be done by a Vulcan. So the Vulcans are under suspect of doing this murder. Long story short, we come to find out that they conclude that it wasn't the Vulcans. So first they're like, oh, you know, it's the Vulcans. Second, then they realize it's not the Vulcans because Spock, who has a lover, yes, a Vulcan lover on the ship, to Pris, she is found dead because she started to investigate personnel on the ship going through records trying to figure out who could possibly be the one doing the murder and then someone murdered her and the vulcans were sequestered somewhere so they couldn't be out on the ship because they were suspects so it couldn't have been a vulcan that did the murder so now the whole crew is under suspect of being a possible murder in this case but we come to find out should we reveal the answer now dan or do you want to say I think something? we should. Okay. Yes. So the answer is it was security officer Reed, not Malcolm Reed from Enterprise. But yes, this officer Reed in here, he was the one originally guarding the glory. But guess what? He's a human Vulcan hybrid. He is a he's got some Vulcan blood in his family going back a few generations. And his family is the protectors of the glory. But since the glory is missing he felt like he needed to help save their name because they're kind of under like 
it's embarrassment in the family that the glory is missing. But not to confuse things too much, his grandmother, his great grandmother, or whoever it was, told him that that glory that was missing was fake anyway. But he's trying, and the original glory is safely hidden away in secret. But even though people are judging them for losing the glory, the glory was never lost. But we come to find out that's not true. She was lying. The glory that was on the Enterprise is the real glory. There you go. Welcome to Days of Our Lives. Young and the Restless. <laughs> Whatever. There are a def- definitely a bunch of like uh, reversals and twists and turns and that sort of thing. And I almost feel like this is kind of leading back to the whole theme of this book, which seems to be like um, things aren't what they appear to be. So like we talked about the mutants, you know, they look horrific, but it turns out they're actually very civilized and that sort of thing. This guy, Reed, looks like a human, but it turns out that he's part of this Vulcan family that's, you know, been protecting this thing. And the Vulcan's glory looks like the Vulcan's glory, but it's not actually. But it actually really is. So maybe that doesn't fit in quite as well. But, you know, it, it feels like it all kind of there's there's kind of a thematic through line with all of these situations. And there was also something about Reed that since he has part Vulcan in him, there was questions of wait. You know, it wasn't until Spock that we knew that Vulcans and humans could actually mate and have child. How can this be? Read, you know, this is like something that happened before that or or anyway, there was something about, oh, 100 years ago, there was some testing by this family or whatever, then they were able to do this. And it took me back to Enterprise with um, Trip and to Pole. <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. I thought this kind of fits in well with that. Yeah, I thought it was a nice little, um, you know, this is, of course, decades before Enterprise was even thought of, but there's nothing in here that contradicts what was going on at the time with Enterprise, which is around the time when this family would have been going through all of this. So, you know, they even talk about early space pioneers from Earth, you know, and I totally pictured like, yeah, that was around the time of the NX-01 and and the early days of the Earth Starfleet. So that all fit together pretty nicely, I thought. I did too. So that's what makes this book even more enjoyable because it it does fit with a lot that we've gotten since the publication of this book. So that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Oh, but before we go on to the next last thing, uh, I would just want to ask you real quick about Spock's lover to press. I kind of like that whole thing where he does not want to be with to even though it's arranged married, but he marriage and he feels like he needs to keep with that. And we see earlier in the book where she really to wants to be with Stan, but then Spock meets this Vulcan woman on the ship and they, she's actually a little more flirtatious with him. She kind of comes on to him. And I kind of like that he had this loving relationship. And when she was murdered, his reaction was very emotional, not crying, but anger, which reminded Mm -hmm. me of how he's portrayed in the Kelvin universe movies where he's got a lot of anger that he's dealing with, with the, with the destruction of Vulcan. Yeah. I really, oh man, I really like to Pris. I think she was a terrific character and it really is such a tragedy that she's killed here. And it's, it's really unfortunate that it's, you know, just in service of Spock's character and all of that. But yeah, to Pring, we get the hints of her being the manipulative, horrible person that we find out for sure that she is in a muck time because, you know, she's manipulating everything so that she gets, you know, as much as she can. She's forced Spock to pay this 
price for every year that they they're not married or something like that and you know she's has stan on the side and you know she's just manipulating everything like oh even if spock and i get married i'll still have you he'll never be around and even if he is around i'll still have you it'll be fine it's just like oh she's so calculating and horrible and pris is so wonderful and oh it's just i hate that they killed her off but yeah it was it gives a lot of uh motivation for spock and they DC Fontana even kind of introduces a reason why we see Spock much different in the original series than he is here. This experience has hardened him and made him cut off his emotions even more so than a typical Vulcan would. Um, he's, he's emotional in this novel, which fits in how we've seen him in the cage. But after this, because of this experience, he's more like the Spock we see in the original series the cage still has to happen after this. So he's still got a little bit of that emotion, but you can see he's kind of on the road to just really becoming that stoic Vulcan who doesn't let things affect him. I'm glad you mentioned about how Dupring was in this novel about the whole payment thing, because they're not married. She's going to go ahead and accept payments from him for like monthly alimony payment type of the situation or like there's some rule in Vulcan like you know well if you don't get married after a certain time then you can make your groom <laughs> pay you money until marriage happens and Spock's like okay well if she's going to request money I'll, I'll start paying it and it's not until he gets on the Enterprise and he finds out how much he's like okay it's more than I expected but okay <laughs> it's like <laughs> that just does not seem like a Vulcan thing You're like yeah yeah the man's got to pay the woman until he marries her. <laughs> yeah, that was. And, and the fact that it's just, you know, it kind of makes sense if you think about, you know, Vulcan marriage being rooted in, you know, far back old traditions and that kind of thing. And if someone can't support themselves, it kind of makes sense that they rely on a spouse to. And if that's being delayed, like maybe they need some help with living and that sort of thing. But that's not how it's used here. It's used as punishment. Like she's just twisting this knife and trying to get as much as she can out of Spock, both financially, I guess, and, you know, life-wise with what she does later. Like it's just, oh, I hate her. And you're it's you're made to hate her because you know what she does later. So, yeah. Yeah. It definitely keeps in, in keeping with her character, what we see later for sure. But okay. To lighten things up, that's pretty much it when it comes to the book, except for one little small B storyline throughout this book. doesn't come up a whole <laughs> lot, but this was not just Spock's first time on the enterprise. It was also Montgomery Scott's first time on the Enterprise. He's serving in the engineering department. He's a junior grade lieutenant, and uh, he's got a roommate named Bob Bryan. And Bob really is the one, the instigator of this, where I guess there's a tradition with engineering departments in Starfleet where they make what is called engine room hooch. And <laughs> so they have a the still that they're going to make this hooch but they can't really let, you know, everybody know about it. They kind of sneak it around like, you know, hey, you want some hooch? We're made some hooch. I'll, I'll give you some hooch. So there's a lot of, you know, moments where Scotty is sipping or, 
where Scotty's sipping the hooch. And, like, it's just like, I don't know. And then they're like, they're trying to investigate where the glory went and they're going to go around the ship. They got to hide their still because they don't want it to be found. It's like a bunch of moonshiners, you know, on the enterprise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, this was a fun part of the story. Um, I, I like Scotty. I kind of like how he's used here. And I like, you know, that, like you said, this is a tradition on Starfleet ships. And there's this starship, the Lionheart, that has this prized recipe. But Scotty's like, oh, they would not give you their prized recipe. This isn't it. I can make quality engine room hooch. And sure enough, it's really good. Um, However, there's a minute, tiny fracture in the dilithium crystal. And they've, of course, hidden this in the wall in engineering. And it's infected the it's contaminated the the alcohol in the still with gamma rays and luckily it doesn't all turn them into like bruce banner hulks but it gives them this weird type of intoxication where they kind of black out and don't know what they're doing and that kind of thing i gotta ask did you think this would play into the main plot at all or like i was totally expecting them to find out that this played into the whole uh, murders and and that kind of thing somehow, but it never really does. No, it doesn't. It really doesn't connect to any of the story. I I guess at the beginning I was expecting that at some point it's going to connect, but I kept forgetting about it. Mm-hmm. So every time it came up, it was like, oh yeah, Scotty and the Hooch. Okay, <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh, we got that again. And it didn't seem like it was going to connect as things were going along. But yeah, you would think, I think when they discovered the still near the dilithium crystal that was cracked or whatever, I thought there was going to be a connection there that maybe the uh, the glory was in with the dilithium crystal and somehow yeah. that affected the still. Like, I thought there was going to be a connection there and there just never was. It's just kind of a fun B-plot to introduce Scotty to the Enterprise and explain, I guess, why there's no engine room hooch in the original series because <laughs> the chief engineer at the time puts her foot down at the end of this novel and just declares that there will be no hooch made in the engine room on the Enterprise ever. And luckily, Scotty at some point falls absolutely in love with the Enterprise and her wee bairns. Otherwise, I feel like he would have hitched a ride on the closest starship that allowed them to make hooch uh, right away. But thankfully, he doesn't leave. (laughs) (laughs) No. But now I thought it was interesting, too, that Scotty and Spock both start on the Enterprise together and then they're there together through their entire Enterprise career until the Enterprise A is decommissioned. So they were on for the same amount of time. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Kind of a nice, nice tradition there. So Scotty has his hooch and Spock has his hoochie mama, you know? (laughs) (laughs) oh dear (laughs) anyway well i think it's time for our final thoughts on this story dan i think you're going to give this a positive review yes um it's pretty clear if you've listened to the episode i really enjoyed this uh there's so many early novels that i think are gems and this one you know, centers around a rather large gem. I did not intend to make that joke when I started this sentence, but that's how it's turned out. (laughs) I I do really enjoy this book and it's definitely 
lifted up by the fact that it's written by DC Fontana. It's extremely well written. I really enjoy the story. I love the glimpse into Spock's early years on or early first mission on the Enterprise and the fact that it's, you know, totally centered around Pike and his crew on the Enterprise. There's no Kirk in this at all. There's no, you know, none of the original series time frame comes into it at all. It's completely set during Pike's command of the Enterprise, which makes it really unique, I think, especially at this time in the novels. So, yeah, I, I really appreciated the story. I love the Star Trekky type themes that come into it with the, you know, coming to an understanding among three different groups of people and the whole murder mystery. I got a little annoyed when, you know, first to Pris and then Spock are going over the computer records and they're like, oh, of course, I figured it out. And then we as the audience don't learn that until much later because of reasons that got a little bit annoying. I was like, okay, come on, just, you know, reveal what's going on. Don't drag it out. That said, I, I like what they've done here. DC Fontana's crafted a murder mystery and that's pretty much a trope in murder mysteries. So it's kind of forgivable. Um, I definitely have to give this a high rating. I think like I'd say four and a half really cool pieces of jewelry mined that are created by the mutants who have mined the precious metal on Aretta. <laughs> you know, I'm right there with you. I was thinking four and a half somethings. I'm thinking four and a half cuts, fine cuts into the emerald. <laughs> Ooh, the Vulcans wouldn't like that. <laughs> no, no. But it wasn't a full five. So the Vulcans, you know, aren't going to get the full five on this one, but close to it. But yeah, mm -hmm. I feel the same way. I think, the historical nature of this book in Star Trek is important because who the author is and when it was written and her connection to the Spock character in her writings, both on the original series and the animated series. I think this has a lot of historical value. And even if someone's not a big reader of Star Trek novels, I would strongly suggest someone who's very big into Spock and the original series, or even interested in the Pike era to pick up this book. As we mentioned earlier, it's a quick read. It's a very enjoyable read. And it also gives us backstory on number one, which I think other authors and now the Star Trek discovery authors and writers are going to honor to some respect. So um, it's not like the best Star Trek story I've ever read, but it's a really solid one. But I just think because of who wrote it and gave us some backstory on these characters and for this being the first Pike novel, there's just something intriguing about reading this book. And I've, I've really enjoyed it. So, yeah, four out of five for me, too, which is funny because I didn't know what Dan was going to give it. And I had wrote down four out of five and that's what I was going to do. As a matter of fact, I was I wrote down four out of five minerals that the mutants mined, And he said that, too. It's so uh. weird because. Sorry. You guys don't know. There's so many times that we have no idea what we're going to say our rating system is going to be. And then one of us says it and the other one goes, oh, that's what I was going to do. And then we always say I was going to do it because I didn't think you would do it. But we always seem to do that. 
So <laughs> see, and what's funny is this time around, I, I feel bad about this because I hadn't thought of anything and I realized I hadn't thought of anything until about three seconds before I said that. So I was like, ah, oh, what are some things in this novel? Oh, the jewelry that the guys sell. Yeah, I'll go with that. So, oh, I snatched that right out of you. I know. It's a f- oh, and I had, right at the end. I had written down mutants mining minerals. <laughs> oh, see, and you had the alliteration. You should have. Yours was much better. Darn it. <laughs> no, no. Anyway, so they're good. There we go. Positive reviews of this book. And you know what? We're going to keep uh, doing more Pike novels. So keep tuning in. And I think we'll have one in a couple months. I like what you said about this novel, about it being significant to the history of Star Trek. I think, you know, on top of it being a good story, I think that is something that I really took away from this is, you know, DC Fontana is just so important to the legacy of Star Trek. And to get a novel about, you know, a character that she created so much backstory for was really special. And I'm really glad we got the chance to read this. When I heard the podcast episode on Trek Files with Larry Nemechek sometime a few months ago or so, and Dorothy Fontana was on there and she was talking about number one and explaining some of the backstory of her name. And I was like, oh my gosh, I remember that in the novel that she wrote. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's it. So I was like really excited at that time when I heard her say that she was reiterating what I remembered from her writing in this novel. So it's been a lot of fun reading this book because of, I think because we're into discovery. So it gives a whole nother appreciation to it also. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, obviously the writers of discovery aren't beholden to anything in the novels and the, the chances they've read this novel in particular are pretty small, I think. But the fact that we're halfway through season two and there's been nothing that really directly contradicts what's been in this novel, I think, is great. And uh, even though that's not a mark of quality or, or anything like that, like lots of novels have been wiped from the continuity that I still really enjoy. They're still really great stories. The fact that, you know, I can still kind of incorporate this into my personal continuity was a nice little added benefit. Yeah. And the characterization of Pike in this novel really fits well with what we've seen in discovery with his characterization that it made me wonder if they did look at this novel, maybe not read the whole thing, but just, you know, dipped into it a little, get an idea because it was written by Dorothy Fontana. I don't know, probably not, but eh, I don't know. I did wonder about that, but I don't know. It's been fun talking about Pike Number one, Spock, Emeralds, Mutants, and so on today. But it's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Warp 5. Well, and I feel like a side quest could be finding more spheres and gathering intelligence from each one. And each one has like a different way you have to get into them and a different thing you have to collect. Right or yeah, or they're they're cloaked differently. Yeah. Or each one you know, had each yeah, one is I, in, individual. Earl Grey, because like the DNA transformation, what where's the DNA coming from that's being transformed? You know, I, it's I, like I a mean, replicator. Yeah, and I think that again, <laughs> no, the the, the <laughs> yeah, but I mean again, the explanation that it's an advanced Genesis device kind of makes me buy mm, it more. Okay, yeah, but. 
it, it just felt a little weird the dna thing it just looked it looks like some hey we need can somebody just throw some leaves on the bridge you know but you know i think it's a really cool concept the the snakes in the in the uh, torpedo the torpedo i i for some it, at that moment i thought this is the halloween 3 of star trek the next generation <laughs> to the journey that's that's a really good point, Suzanne. We need to clarify because we're, when we're talking about Chakotay and Seven, some of the best romantic scenes are not actually with Chakotay; they're with hologram Chakotay. Yes, I would like to meet hologram Chakotay. He seems nice. You want to date with holographic Chakotay? Okay. <laughs> if I had a holodeck, you know, I'd be programming that in right now. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Saru finally realizes at some point he's seeing its language in ultraviolet light. Basically, Morse code. I don't know why they don't say that wording. Oh, you thought Morse code? Because I was thinking binary. That makes sense, too. But isn't binary kind of a version of Morse code? Or Morse code is a type of binary language? Because all it is is beeps and not beeps. You know what I mean? And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. And you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And if you have the time, please leave us a star rating and a written review. We really want to hear from you and what you think about the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, Windows, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, on those crazy little pad things they use on the Enterprise, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron on the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, and we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. So again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks and that'll come right to me and Bruce. You can also find the network on Twitter, we're at trek.fm, and on Facebook at facebook.com trek.fm. Hey, guess what? You can find us on Goodreads. If you like to read books, I assume maybe you do if you're listening to this podcast, but you can join our group on Goodreads. We have a bookshelf showing all the previous books we've read, all the current books that we're reading, and future books that are going to come up on the show. Plus, there's great conversations about the books and the comics in that group. So just go to Goodreads and search for Literary Treks and then click Join Group and we'll let you right in. And we'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shea Matala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, I'm going to use my Mutants Mining Minerals by asking Dan 
when you're not mining for gems and minerals and things with the mutants, where can people find you? Well, when I'm not doing that, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube.com slash Kurtrats Productions, making videos about Star Trek. Really excited for the Picard show coming up. Oh, my God. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook.com slash Kurtrats Productions and in the Babel Conference, sometimes lurking, sometimes posting. Now, Bruce, when you're not stealing away into the desert to be with the nomad woman that you love, where can we find you? Oh, wow. I've always wanted to be with a nomad woman. <laughs> that just sounds I awesome. Um, I won't tell your wife. <laughs> <laughs> hey, maybe she is a nomad woman. You never know. Um, well, when she hears this, she will be a mad woman, not a nomad one. But uh, <laughs> you can find me here on the network doing Live from the Edge with Brandy Jacola where we talk about Discovery the night after it premieres. And that's a live show on YouTube, so check that out. Just go to the Trek FM YouTube page in, on Friday evenings, and you'll find the information there, or our feed there, I should say. And you can also find me doing Star Wars discussions on the Star Wars Report with Riley Blanton. And also, you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And, of course, you can find me here on Literary Treks, the best show on Trek FM. Don't tell Brandy I said that because she'll say, I thought Live from the Edge was the best show. But anyway, and then you can find me, of course, always in the Babel Conference. So thank you, everyone, for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.